Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. everyone. Thank you for joining me around the fireside tonight. My name is Joe, and I'm here to tell you a story. A story about the magic of writing. A story of worlds and netherworlds. Of gifts and beauty. Of life and loss. A story about the power of the imagination proudly presenting The Parchment, written by Rowan Gray, a thoroughly enchanting and well-written story I am happy to read for you now. This wonderful tale is available on Amazon, and you can follow the author on Facebook under Rowan Gray Books. This story is one I particularly enjoyed reading, as it's one that captures my own fascination with the power of words and imagination. It's wonderfully well thought out, and I am pleased to be able to share it with you. I really do hope you enjoy this journey through magically created worlds. If you would like to hear more of this kind of genre, please let me know by leaving a comment, like or review, and subscribing to whatever platform you're listening on. We're also crowdfunding for the continued existence and expansion of the show. Should you wish to get involved, please check out gofundme.com slash talesbythefireside. Everything you do, and every interaction you make, really does mean the world. Now please, get comfortable, let go of the daylight, and join me for our story. The Parchment by Rowan Gray Chapter 1 Unwanted Gifts It all seems so very long ago now. It's been many a year since my greatest lesson had been learnt. When I think back how ungrateful I was. My reasoning had all been wrong. Born from my immaturity, I suppose. But nevertheless, still apparent. That year at Christmas, as indeed most years, my school friends had new toys all in bright colours. New clothes, fit for gentlemen, and chocolates and candied treats under their tree. While I had three pieces of fine parchment, wrapped in brown paper, tied with a ribbon and a new quill. 
I had a drawer filled with unused parchment from previous years. The green-eyed monster was present, and I let it be known. Father, sir, why don't I ever have brightly coloured toys and new clothes for Christmas? I would ask. You speak when spoken to, young man. Do you understand? would come the response, as my father took another puff on his pipe, looking down at me over the top of his eyeglasses. But I would dare to continue. But what boy? Father would bellow back at me, interrupting my words. Nothing, father, I'd answer, too afraid to challenge his authority. Hmm, I thought so, he would finish, as he leaned back into his chair. For many years it went on this way. It wasn't for lack of money, you must understand. Oh no, quite the opposite. Compared to my classmates, I came from a wealthy family. Father was a self-made gentleman of considerable wealth. The founder of Addington Law, a practice that employed more than 20 men, of which he'd often remind me. We lived in a large Georgian manor house, set in its own grounds, which were tree-lined at the perimeter and had stables and staff quarters at the rear. We had a small staff, including Florence, our housekeeper, who cooked and cleaned for us, Grace, our nanny, and Benjamin, who tended to the gardens and the stables. Father saw no need for toys or any displays of lavishness or opulence. We had what we needed, not what we wanted. He would say that made us respect our possessions more and not treat them callously and add to the throwaway refuse pile. It went on this way for a few years, until one year, at Christmas in 1853, my Uncle Henry came to join us for dinner. He was a jolly fellow. He was the youngest of three siblings, which probably had a part to play in his outlook on life, and unlike father, he'd always spend time with us chatting. And that year, he brought us some sugared jelly sweets. Father didn't like that, but he'd not let them go to waste. So my sister Annabelle and I were allowed one per day as a treat. We all ate a fine dinner prepared by Florence, which was served in the dining room. We sat at the dining table, formally dressed. I recall our heavy mahogany 12-seat dining table feeling enormous to me when I was younger. Mother and father sat at the one end while Annabelle and I sat towards the middle. Opposite Grace, our nanny, and Uncle Henry sat at the other end. It was a very traditional room, with a large open fireplace at the centre, three long ornate side tables lined the walls, and a magnificent French crystal and bronze chandelier hung over the dining table. A tall, traditionally decorated Christmas tree stood at the window, and a luxurious Christmas garland was draped over the mantel. Dinner, consisting of a roasted goose and a turkey, crispy roasted potatoes and parsnips that had been cooked in the fat of the goose and dressed with honey and a choice of other vegetables, all served with piping hot gravy and fresh cranberries that had been grown in our garden, served in a crystal bowl. All followed by Christmas pudding, 
with brandy sauce. At Christmas, Florence always brought out the best porcelain dinner service and silverware. I fondly remember that I found the sixpence in my pudding that year and father congratulating me. After dinner, for a short while, mother and father retired to the drawing room with a small glass of sherry. Uncle Henry, Annabel and I went into the study to read through our Christmas cards from family and friends. I took the opportunity and I asked, Uncle Henry, do you know... Why do all of our friends get new colourful toys and new clothes for Christmas while Annabelle and I only ever have parchment and a new quill? Well, William, you'd better come and take a comfortable seat, young man. Annabelle too, he said, tapping the seat next to him with the palm of his hand. Annabelle and I sat right next to him on the window seat behind Father's desk looking up at him as he began his story. Firstly, you must realise that parchment alone is just parchment, but when you write upon it, the parchment is magical. Annabelle and I looked at each other with a look of bewilderment on our faces and both said, Magical? in unison. Uncle Henry raised his right hand. Let me continue, he said in his friendly voice. Annabelle and I sat, now listening alertly and focused looking upon Uncle Henry, completely engrossed. Okay, as I was saying, without any ink, the parchment is just parchment. But when you transfer ink to the parchment with your quill and read your words aloud, it transports you to any world, indeed, any universe you can imagine. Again, Annabelle and I looked at each other with glazed eyes momentarily but we continued listening intently and turned our attention back to Uncle Henry. It has been many a year since I was able to take advantage of it myself. I fear the imagination required is more of a gift for the young, Uncle Henry continued. So you see, young Master William and Miss Annabel, your gift of parchment is more than what it seems and indeed more than a match for any gift that any of your friends might present or brag of. Annabel and I both gasped. Wow, we didn't realise, I said. Annabel agreed. Mother and father came in to join us. Annabel ran to mother in excitement. Is it true, mother, is it true? Is our parchment magical? Uncle Henry looked upon his brother and sister-in-law with a content smile on his face and inconspicuously winked his left eye. Well, of course, dear, Mother said in an unsure voice, not knowing what Uncle Henry had told us. Nothing but the best for our family, Father said in a more jovial mood than usual, feeling a little tipsy following his glass of sherry. Annabelle and I ran to the Christmas tree and collected our gifts, our minds both racing in wonder. What should we write? Annabelle ran all the way to her attic bedroom which overlooked the rear gardens. She sat at her desk in front of the ox-eye window and almost immediately began to write. I, on the other hand, went to my room, but as it was getting late, 
I decided to sleep on it and begin my writing in the morning. Although I was just as excited as Annabelle about the prospect of getting started, I thought I'd get a good night's sleep first and start fresh. That was the night that Annabelle disappeared, never to be found to this day. It had been many years now since our mother and father had passed. They died heartbroken, having never found Annabelle. As they'd gotten older, through ailments that come with old age, they had to give up their search. I continued the search where they left off. On Christmas night 1853, Annabelle disappeared. She was aged nine, and I was eleven years old at the time. The next morning, on Boxing Day, Florence alerted my parents that Annabelle wasn't in her bed. We all searched throughout the house. Her bed looked as though it hadn't been slept in. Her quill stood proudly in the inkpot, and her parchment had been laid out on the desk, stuck down at the corners with writings that Father insisted were never to be read. The search continued, firstly in the grounds, and then a day passed, and the police were informed. Our neighbours, family and friends joined the search. We searched for miles around. Posters were put up and telegrams were sent far and wide, but to no avail. I remember vividly the day that Police Sergeant Miller came to tell my father they were calling off the search. He explained that they simply didn't have the resources. He indicated that in over half of the English counties there was no police force, mainly owing to the costs involved. By then, the search had gone on for nearly three months. Mother and father were devastated. Father hired people to continue the search until, eventually, he could no longer afford the extra help. Following a spate of crime, in 1856, Parliament passed a new bill, the County and Borough Police Act, which made policing compulsory in England and Wales and made provision for treasury assistance to local authorities. At that time, Father was able to reopen Annabelle's case and the search went on for many more months, but again, to no end. The whole thing struck a change in us all. Father blamed Uncle Henry for putting thoughts of magical worlds into our heads. That year, my father destroyed all of the books, parchment and writing implements in the house, and as a child, he forbade me from writing on any parchment ever again. At Christmas the following year, I had colourful toys and new clothes, the same as my school friends. After that... We stopped celebrating Christmas as father couldn't bear it and I would still find mother crying alone sometimes, even 20 or 30 years later. Annabelle's room was locked and left exactly as it was. If she returned, it would be ready waiting for her just the way she left it, mother and father ensured. I'm in my 60s now, an old man myself, but I still hold on to a dream that one day I'll get to hug my sister and tell her I love her and that she's safe. I sat waiting in the front room 
at the residence of Mr. Albert Timlican. We'd been corresponding for the last three months. He claimed to be able to find my sister and return her to me. Although sceptical, I investigated every lead. Mary, his housekeeper, had shown me in and offered me a seat while I was waiting. Mr. Timlican will be with you shortly, she informed me, and disappeared through large wood panel double doors with a sign above that read, Albert Timlican, Master Wordsmith. Chapter 2 The Wordsmith The room where I sat waiting in Mr. Timlican's residence was filled with gemstones, crystals of all different colours and chimes. A mixture of smoky incense fragrances filled the air. Mr. Timlican pulled open the left-hand door. Come in, he said, in an accent I couldn't quite distinguish while beckoning me to follow him. Thank you, I replied graciously, and followed him through the doorway into a darkened corridor which led to a room filled with hundreds, if not thousands, of shelved books, floor-to-ceiling along all four walls. Apart from the doorway into the room, Almost every inch was filled with books. Set to the left there was a desk with a chair tucked neatly beneath. Mr Timlican pulled out the chair and turned it facing inwardly towards another which was opposite about two metres away. Next to that chair stood a slate blackboard on an easel with chalk sticks in a tray at its foot. He invited me to sit on the high-backed wooden chair which was intricately carved with a symbol of the sun at the centre of the backrest. He sat on an almost identical chair, positioned opposite. Mr Timlican looked very old, with white hair and wrinkly skin, beady eyes and a pointy nose that was out of proportion with the rest of his face. I couldn't help thinking he had a certain familiarity about him. He wore a crisp, high-collared white shirt and boldly striped necktie with a tatty-looking waistcoat and trousers. Every finger on his hands was adorned with rings made of pewter with symbols of the mystical and magical. I glanced around the room. His library included books from all cultures and in many languages about psychology, mysticism, religion, science, spiritualism and magic. Before we begin... We agreed full payment would be made up front, Mr Timlican pointed out. His comment made me feel very uneasy. In fact, since arriving at his residence, I was feeling more and more uneasy as time went by. I found myself questioning, was he conning me? I took a deep breath, pulled my wallet from the inside pocket of my overcoat and paid him his fee. Okay, let us begin. Mr. Timlican started, clasping his hands together. Okay, thank you. May I call you William, or do you prefer Mr. Addington? Mr. Timlican asked. I think Mr. Addington is more fitting, thank you, I stated. Okay, that's fine then, he responded. From our correspondence, I think I'm already quite familiar with your case. 
But just so I'm sure, do you still have your sister's parchment? Well, yes, it's still locked in her room. The same way it was the night she disappeared, I confirmed. I sat feeling uncomfortable, deliberating whether to leave. Mr. Addington, do you believe in magic? He asked. What? No, never. Don't be ridiculous, I'm not a child, I exclaimed, feeling aggravated. I need you to keep an open mind, Mr. Addington, and I promise you, I'll prove to you that magic is real. This is outrageous, Mr. Timlikin, I interrupted. Mr. Timlikin stood, staring down at me. Mr. Addington, I assure you, if you listen and follow everything I say, you will find your sister. Is that not why you're here? He returned sharply. I was about to get up, but in truth, Mr. Timlikin's fee, to me at least, was a meagre amount and I'd given everything I owned just to find Annabelle. Realising I must accept this, I sat for a moment to let it meld. Okay, Mr. Timlikin, you're right. Please continue. We carried on our conversation for a while. Mr. Timlikin asked me lots of questions about Annabelle and asked me for a photograph, which I provided, and our meeting came to a close. Mr. Timlikin explained he would need to get some supplies and that we should meet again in one week. One thing before you leave, Mr. Addington. The next time we meet, please bring with you Annabelle's parchment and her quill. However, I must warn you, do not read it until we are ready. Okay, that's fine. I begrudgingly agreed and left for home feeling more than a little disillusioned. Added to that, the whole experience had brought some very painful memories back to the surface. Later that night, back at our family home, I searched the cupboards and drawers for the key to Annabelle's room. I had almost given up hope of finding it, when, from the corner of my eye, I saw the key standing in a metal tankard on the landing windowsill. It was late, so I pocketed the key and decided I'd deal with the matter the next day and retired to my bed. The next morning after breakfast, I ventured upstairs with the key to Annabelle's room in hand. My heart raced as I thought about what I was about to do. Annabelle's door hadn't been opened in 53 years. I stood before the heavy pine panel door, trying to decide if it was the right thing to do. After deliberating, although my trust in Mr Timlikin was wavering, I knew he was the only hope I had left, and therefore I had to follow it through. I pushed the key into the lock and turned it anti-clockwise. I was surprised to find that the lock opened with apparent ease after all that time. I gripped the doorknob and turned it open. As the seal of the door broke, the door cracked open and I pushed it wide. The curtains were closed, leaving the room blanketed in almost complete darkness, apart from near the doorway where light crept in from the landing. I lit a candle to enter the room since the lighting in Annabelle's room hadn't been upgraded to incandescent lighting with the rest of the old manor 
as my father had insisted it remain locked. He had commissioned the work in 1884, just one year before he died. Under the light from the candle, the words on the parchment shimmered. Remembering Mr. Timlikin's firm advice, I looked away. Don't read the words on the parchment, echoed in my head. I drew back the curtains, which lit the room adequately, so I snuffed out the candle, placed it on the mantel, and took a good look around. The room was very dusty and cobweb-laden. Annabelle's four-poster bed took pride of place and remained untouched, ready to climb into. Her large wooden chest and wardrobe stood neatly against the far wall. Numerous trinkets, soft toys and furnishings belonging to Annabelle sat neatly in their chosen dwellings. Her desk was placed below the Yoxai window, where light from the window was at its brightest. I decided I wouldn't disturb anything apart from what I had to do. I'd just get the parchment and quill and leave the room otherwise untouched. I approached Annabelle's desk and blew the dust away from the edges of the parchment where it had been taped to the desk, being careful not to eye the words upon it as I did so. One by one, I peeled back the tape at each corner, freeing the parchment, and then I rolled it into a tight scroll and bound it with a ribbon. In doing so, I could almost swear I heard a voice. Very faintly, but I heard it. I shook my head, deciding that I'd gotten too wrapped up in Mr Timlikin's words and placed the scroll into a wooden box. And then I picked up Annabelle's quill and added that to the box too. I reasoned with myself. It would have been a voice that carried from outside of the house or from the kitchens, where Beatrice, the delightful lady who'd succeeded Florence, was preparing vegetables from the garden. I took one last look around and decided to lock the room once more. I thought my mother and father would have preferred it that way too. That morning, Mr Timlikin ventured into town with some of the £60 I'd given to him in his pocket and got the supplies he needed. A new quill, ink and three pieces of parchment. As the week went on, I found myself unable to concentrate. I found it especially difficult during the times when I was alone. I eagerly awaited my next meeting with Mr Timlikin. A week soon passed and I again entered Mr Timlikin's residence, still feeling more than a little suspect of his true intentions. We sat in his library, as we had before. Do you have Annabel's parchment and her quill? Mr Timlikin asked. Yes, I have it here, I answered, and presented the wooden box. Perfect. I'll keep this safe for now, Mr Timlikin replied and placed it high on a shelf between some books. I remained seated. Okay, Mr Addington, we must begin at lesson one, and work our way through in succession to make sure that you are properly prepared. This is very important, Mr Timlikin started. After taking a deep sigh, I said, Okay, Mr Timlikin, please continue. Waving his index finger in the air, Mr Timlikin continued. Lesson number one. 
You must always create a door that works both ways, so that you may enter the netherworld, but also be able to return. Rolling my eyes, I huffed. I suppose that makes sense, Mr. Timlikin. You must take this seriously, Mr. Addington. Otherwise, you'll be trapped in the netherworld, along with Annabelle. Feeling somewhat unamused, I just looked upon Mr. Timlikin blankly. He stood at the blackboard with a piece of chalk in his hand. Describe a doorway to me, Mr. Timlikin exclaimed with the chalk at the ready to scribe my answer onto the blackboard. Okay, a timber frame, I began sceptically. Yes, yes, go on, he answered as he chalked my response. Six panels. Okay, go on, he said, adding it to a list. Hinged at the left and a doorknob to the right. Okay, continue, he requested as he finished updating the list. Well, that's it, isn't it? No, you forgot the most important thing. Sorry, I snapped, feeling that I was partaking in a childish game. The door must allow access from both ways. One way in and the other way out. Describe it to me in more detail. Does it lock? Who possesses the key? How big is the door? What colour is the wood? If you have the key, how will you keep it safe? Mr Timlikin bombarded in the voice of a teacher addressing their class. Also, you must lock the door to keep the real world safe from intrusion, Mr Timlikin continued. I feel you're playing a childish prank, Mr Timlikin, I said sharply. You're not taking this seriously, Mr Addington. I think I should just return your money and you should forget about finding Annabelle, Mr Timlikin snapped. No, no, I apologise. Please, I wish to continue, I said, knowing that I had no other hopes of finding Annabelle. You are in the wrong state of mind, Mr Addington. Return to me in three days, Mr Timlikin declared before leading me to the door. I stood outside Mr Timlikin's residence, feeling slightly aggravated. I realised I'd been rude and I must have offended him and thought that the three-day break was probably the best thing for us both. Chapter 3. The Doorway The three days passed in what felt to me at a snail's pace. During that time, though, to some extent, I had come to terms with what I must do, or at least try to do, to find Annabelle to the best of my abilities. Even though presently I was finding Mr Timlikin's advice and counsel hard to bear. I arrived at Mr. Timlikin's residence. Mary led me in to join Mr. Timlikin. Once again, I sat before Mr. Timlikin in the same high-backed chair in his library. Okay, Mr. Addington, let's begin. On the desk next to you, I have laid out a parchment. Write upon the parchment with the provided quill and ink, describing your doorway carefully and in every detail. Okay, I'll do my best, Mr. Timlikin, I said, taking the quill in my right hand from the ink pot. I wrote, The bi-directional arch door stood seven feet tall and five feet wide. 
made from strong wood obtained from an old oak, hinged at the left with heavy brass hinges and a matched heavy brass doorknob on the right with keyhole below. The key to the locked door hung safely on a chain around my neck, reading my words aloud as I did so. I lifted my gaze from the parchment and turned to Mr. Timlikin. Okay, Mr. Timlikin, now what? I questioned in the tone of a man who was being inconvenienced. Mr. Timlikin sat in his chair, laughing. Why are you laughing, Mr. Timlikin? I snapped. Look before you, Mr. Addington. Just look before you, he instructed in a calm and composed voice. I turned my head slowly to see where once had stood a wall filled with books belonging to Mr. Timlikin's library. Now, instead, the same wall was inset with the heavy oak door, just as I'd described in my writing, in perfect detail. Oh, my Lord, I voiced quietly as I looked upon my creation. You see, Mr. Addington, magic is indeed real. Mr. Timlikin declared in slowly spoken and certain words. With tears in my eyes and my heart beating wildly in my chest, staring in amazement at my magical creation, I said, Mr. Timlikin, please call me William. Sir, please call me William. Of course. Thank you, William, he replied. At that moment, I believed for the first time in 53 years that I had a chance of being reunited with Annabel. What's next, Mr. Timlikin? I asked almost excitedly, maintaining my focus on the door. One step at a time, William, he remarked. Let's take a short break, William. I'll ask Mary to prepare some tea, he said, before departing briefly. Sat alone with my thoughts, the question occurred to me, how would we now remove the door? I deliberated but came up with no ideas and thought it best to ask Mr Timlikin on his return. Curious, I got up from my seat and touched the door. It was solid and felt completely real. I tapped it with the knuckles of my right hand. It was constructed of oak for sure. I felt astonished to say the least. Next, I realised that the key was suspended from a chain around my neck exactly as I'd written. Absolutely remarkable, I thought, as I appraised the key in the chain. I examined the door, closely scrutinising it in acute detail, and found not a single flaw. Mr Timlikin returned while I was still carrying out my inspection. Do you have any questions, William? he asked. Oh, sorry, I just can't... I know... No need to explain, Mr. Timlikin interrupted. I do have one question. Following creation, how do we then remove it? That, William, is a very good question, he started. I retook my seat. Mary came in with some tea and cupcakes on a tray and laid it on a pedestal. Would you like me to pour, Mr. Timlikin? she asked. Yes, please, Mary, he answered. How do you take your tea, Mr. Addington? Mary asked. White, with one sugar, please, Mary. Mary served us both with our tea and dismissed herself politely before leaving us to continue. Okay, where were we? 
Ah, yes, how to remove your door, Mr. Timnican reiterated. From one perspective, it's quite simple. If the words don't exist, then neither does the door, he imparted. Okay, that sounds logical, I answered. Mr. Timlican took a slurp of his tea. Then, from another perspective, it's more complex, he alluded. How so, Mr. Timlican? One might think that you can just tear the parchment into many pieces. But that isn't necessarily correct, Mr. Timlican continued. I listened with interest as he went on. You see, to completely remove your door, you must never again be able to read the words. Otherwise, its essence will still exist. I'm a little confused, I confessed. Well, to explain, small pieces could be jigsawed back together. Therefore, the words could then be read. So if you tear the parchment, then indeed your doorway will disappear but nonetheless, its essence will still exist, he continued. To remove it permanently, one must burn the parchment, being sure that none of the wording survives the flames. Okay, Mr. Timlican, that makes complete sense, I replied. Mr. Timlican looked at his pocket watch. Okay, William, I believe it's time to call it a day, Mr. Timlican alerted. Ah, so soon, I questioned. These studies are a lot to take in, William. It's better to have a break in between. Shall we say, the same time tomorrow? Okay, Mr Timlican, I'll be here, I answered. Mr Timlican, I wish to thank you for being so patient with me, and I'd like to offer my sincere apologies for doubting your integrity, I added. Think nothing of it, William. I am more than aware of the enormity of accepting the unexplainable. See you tomorrow, William. Mr. Timlican finished. Mary led me to the door. Chapter 4 Laws of the Netherworld We once again sat opposite one another, as had become usual in Mr. Timlican's library. As with the real world, the Netherworld must have balance and follow certain laws of nature. But not all rules are the same there as they are here. Mr. Timlican alluded. I don't quite understand. Not all rules that we abide by here apply in the netherworld. The netherworld is a mystical land of magic and wonder. Shaking my head, feeling confused, I asked, Please go on. Firstly, I must tell you one very important thing. Probably the most important thing. In the netherworld, time does not exist, Mr. Timlican began. What does that mean exactly? I asked. It means many things, Mr. Timlican continued. Okay, I replied, listening with interest. You will not age. You could live for eternity there and never die, he went on. Oh, good Lord, I said, now completely immersed. Trees, flowers, fruits... And anything that you can imagine which grows in our world and takes time to flourish simply appears as the storyteller scribes, he added. In this world, we measure everything against time. In the netherworld, you simply cannot. You must find an alternative scale, Mr. Timlican said, finishing his first point. 
I was feeling mind-boggled. Secondly, from within their land, the scribe, the owner of the parchment, can create things through their will alone. That is, with the exception of anything that connects to the real world. Okay, I think I understand. Thirdly, there must be a balance. Balance? I asked. Where there is land, there must be a sky. Where there is warmth, there must be cold. Where there is day, the night must follow. The yin to the yang, Mr. Timlikan explained. Yin to the yang, I questioned. To the yin, there will always be the yang. Two opposing and complementing principles that can be observed in nature also exist within the netherworld. One cannot exist without the other. Do you understand? Not really, I admitted, feeling I lacked in my education. Okay, perhaps a better explanation is, if you dig a hole, then you will have a mound of soil. The hole cannot exist without the soil you took away to create the hole. Does that make more sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense, I responded, wondering how I'd apply that to everything else. It felt very complicated. My mind is not as young as it once was, I added, instantly feeling it was a silly comment. Mr. Timlikan was clearly much older than I, I thought. I know, it's all a lot to take in. I have studied these things for many years. A luxury you do not have, Mr. Timlikan alerted. Fourthly, everything that is scribed will always remain. Shaking my head, sorry, I feel lost. Mr. Timlikan held up the index finger of his right hand and continued. For example, if you select fruit from a bush, another will replace it, he explained. I nodded my confirmation of understanding. Lastly, one of the most important rules of all is when you cross into Annabelle's world, you will not possess the power of will. In Annabelle's land, that belongs to her alone, Mr. Timlikan finished. In truth, I was feeling totally confused. Okay, let's call it a day, William, and we'll meet again the same time on Wednesday, he suggested. Glad of the break, I agreed and went on my way. As usual, Mary led me to the door. I returned home that day feeling exhausted with the hope that the lesson next time would be easier to consume. I had just two days to rest and integrate all of my most recent learnings. After supper, I decided on an early night. Chapter 5. Bridge Between Worlds Mr. Timlikan had made a firm believer of me, and he'd explained all about natural balance, which, if I was being truthful, still made me feel very uneasy. The two days quickly passed. Once again, I sat opposite him in his library. As usual, I sat in the high-backed wooden chair. Mr. Timlikan started today's session with the box containing Annabelle's parchment in his hand. Okay, William. The next step in our lessons is to learn how to bridge the gap between worlds, so that you may gain access to Annabelle's world. I'm ready and I'm willing, Mr. Timlikan, I expressed, feeling well-rested following my two-day break. Before we continue, William, can we please dispense with the formality? Please call me Albert, he said with a smile. Okay, Albert, that's fine, 
I agreed, and we shook hands, symbolising our agreement. Okay, let us continue, he declared. I have Annabelle's parchment here. This you must carry with you when you venture through the doorway, he continued. I listened intently. There are a few steps to this, William. They're not complicated, but I must stress it's very important to accomplish them in the correct order. Okay, I agreed, nodding my head. Step one, create your doorway. Step two, create your bridge. Step three, read from Annabelle's parchment to connect your bridge to her world, Albert explained. Okay, I understand, I answered, feeling a little anxious, but my excitement and eagerness dulled my anxiety. Today, William, we will create the bridge. Just like your doorway, the bridge must have its attributes described in detail. It must be strong, long enough to reach its destination. It must be supported. It must connect your path to Annabelle's world. That's quite a lot to remember, I answered, feeling like my age might get the better of me and realising that everything combined was a tremendous task and a lot of information to retain. As a younger man, all of this would have been so much easier, I thought. These days I was not only getting more forgetful, but I had other ailments that one might recognise as part of growing older. Arthritic pains, aching bones, my mother used to say. I knew I had to keep myself positive, and with each lesson I did feel that I was much closer to my goal. Okay then, William, let us begin. Albert started, stood in front of the blackboard with chalk in hand. Describe your bridge for me, he directed. Okay, it's made of steel and supported by great pillars of stone, I began. Yes, go on, he encouraged as he chalked pointers onto the blackboard. It rises from the path before me. It continues until it reaches the edge of the other world, where it drops downwards and connects both worlds together. Okay, go on, William, Albert said, looking me in the eyes and rolling his open right palm in front of him, gesturing me, gesturing me to provide more details. Uh, I'm not sure I can describe it further, I alluded, feeling concerned that I hadn't done an adequate job. Okay, let me try and help, Albert suggested. What is laid underfoot? How long is it? How wide is it? Is it entirely made from steel, or is that just its frame? What do the stone pillars stand on? Please continue, he asked. From its beginning to its end, the bridge is exactly one mile long. The stone pillars stand on a firm and green grassy plain. It's 30 feet wide, and underfoot is laid with cobblestones. Albert chalked all of my points down in succession as I spoke. Once completed, he read them through and then turned to me. Okay, William, do you feel ready to attempt venturing into the netherworld? He asked. I took a deep breath. My heart was racing. Just a trial, you must understand, he said, holding up his hand with his palm facing towards me. You'll not take Annabelle's parchment with you today, he illuminated. Okay, I answered. I was starting to perspire and feeling a little nauseous. It was apparent to me that Albert could see that I looked uncomfortable. There's no hurry, William. Would you like to take a break first? Perhaps we can take tea. Okay, that sounds good, I agreed. 
he departed for a few minutes to ask Mary to make some tea. I sat, mentally preparing myself for the next stage in my training. The biggest step yet. It felt like a leap rather than a step. Albert returned. Okay, William. Mary will be along shortly with some tea. But in the meantime, do you have any questions? He asked. I don't think I do. I just feel quite anxious and nauseous. Oh, that's quite normal. We all fear the unknown, William. As soon as you step through the doorway, all of that will dissipate, he comforted. I hope so, I answered, taking a deep breath. Shortly after, Mary entered with our tea and served it for us. It's surprising how a good cup of tea can mellow your mood, Albert remarked. Do you feel that way, William? he questioned. Feeling a little better? I know what you mean, I uttered. We finished our tea and prepared. Albert went through all of the steps on the blackboard one more time and laid a fresh piece of parchment on the desk beside me. OK, William, over to you, he said, taking his seat. Take your time and make sure you include all of the details listed on the blackboard, he continued. I pulled my chair closer to the desk, picked the primed quill from the ink pot, and began to write. A while later, I'd finished my scripture, then slowly and purposely read my words aloud. The doorway, as before, stood tall and wide, inset into the east wall of Albert's library, and its key dangled freely on a medium-weight chain at my chest. I turned to Albert. OK, Albert, I think I'm ready, I observed. Indeed you are, William, he confirmed. Today, William, all I want you to do is unlock the door, step through, lock it behind you, observe the netherworld and get acquainted before you return. Take it all in. Give it time to fill your senses. This is your opportunity to gain experience of the netherworld and also this is your final lesson before you begin your search for Annabelle, he declared. I took one last deep breath and stood ready in front of the heavy oak door. Equipped with the key in my right hand, I turned to Albert. See you soon, Albert, I hope, I said sincerely, but feeling worried, alone and exposed. Oh, there's no need for hope, William. I can assure you of that, he expressed as I turned the key. The lock clicked open and I hung the keychain back over my neck. Grasping the heavy brass doorknob, I took one last brief look around the library as I pushed open the huge heavy oak door, revealing the gateway to the netherworld. A bright light, brighter than I'd ever witnessed, filled my field of vision. A magical spectacle of illumination. Entranced, I stepped through the light and over the threshold into the netherworld, closing the door behind me. Albert sat in his chair where he'd been observing William departing the real world. He had witnessed this many times before, but each time it felt as magical and mysterious as his last. It always left him feeling an inner warmth. For him, a deep satisfaction of the soul. He sat feeling content, smiling with delight at the marvel he'd again been so fortunate to behold. He truly relished it, each and every time. He took in a deep breath with contentment. He was feeling excited to soon be reunited with William, to be able to hear of his experience. He checked the time periodically, 
feeling intoxicated with the whole experience and was growing restless and almost impatient as he waited for William's return. More than ten minutes had passed. Albert was starting to think that something had gone wrong. William had locked the door and stood completely still, mesmerised by the wonderment he beheld. His scripture beautifully retreated into a three-dimensional, geometrical and textured world of infinite beauty. Awestruck, every aspect he looked upon made his jaw drop in astonishment, admiration and reverence. As he marvelled, he'd not even realised he no longer felt his earlier anxiety or nausea. The bridge stood solidly and boldly, twisting and winding its way into the middle distance. Suspended by great arches of stone, thousands of feet tall, and standing up on lush and green grassy plains deep below. Spanning thirty feet wide, laid with uniformly shaped cobblestones to its surface, all beneath a cloudless and pristine azure sky. William viewed it all, sweeping his view from one side to the other and then repeating, finding it so tantalising that it was difficult to remove his gaze. Albert grew more and more restless. Now almost thirty minutes had passed. Albert minds raced. What could have gone wrong? Did I miss anything in my teachings? he worried. Just then, the oak door began to open. Oh, thank goodness, he aired aloud. William stepped back through, smiling the biggest smile, expressing the happiness of a child receiving his most favoured gift in his expression. Chapter 6 Uncle Henry's Travels Six months earlier, Henry Addington arrived back in Great Britain. He was now a very old man. A very significant age for a man living in 1910, at 91 years old. He had brought with him a companion called Mary, who had travelled with him now for more than 30 years. Mary was his housekeeper and friend. Uncle Henry had loved and lost, and had lived as a widower ever since the death of his spouse, Catherine, a little more than six years ago. At around Easter time in 1854, my father, Leonard Addington, and my mother, Martha Addington, much to my disagreement, banished Uncle Henry from the Addington family, blaming him entirely for the disappearance of Annabel. Uncle Henry begged their forgiveness. It was just a story, Leonard. How can you possibly believe that I'm to blame for this? Please forgive me, Uncle Henry pleaded with my father with tears in his eyes. If you hadn't put those silly ideas in her head... Annabel would still be here, Henry. It's as simple as that. Please, just leave. My father spat, pointing at the door. Uncle Henry turned to me. William, I'll never forget your Annabel. I love you both very much. Please remember that. He uttered his last words before he turned and left the house. My father turned to me. Go to your room, boy, he spat. I ran up the stairs, straight to my room in tears, and watched through my bedroom window as Uncle Henry walked to the end of the front garden path and turned to take one last look at the house before opening the gate and leaving for good. In the coming days, Uncle Henry found his banishment hugely difficult to deal with. He felt uncomfortable living in the same town. Friends of my mother and father, who'd previously been kind, now shunned him. 
Just one week later, Uncle Henry decided to pull together all of his finances and move on. With sadness in his heart, Uncle Henry began his travels. It wasn't long before his travels had turned into a passion. He was hooked. Occasionally, he'd send a postcard or a letter from some far-off land to the family, but he never got a reply. My father would offer some fly comment. More litter for the waste paper bin. To my dismay, although I never did confront him about it, I found it completely disagreeable. As the years rolled by, Uncle Henry's passion for travel defined him. He had an irrepressible impulse to travel, explore and to discover. To live in and be part of different cultures and to adapt to new environments. He had an unquenchable curiosity for travelling and learning, which had also become encyclopedic writings. Uncle Henry had travelled around Europe, Asia and the Americas, learning new languages, cultures, science and religions. In 1854, when his travels began, it was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, which began in Great Britain and over the coming decades spread to Europe and North America. Uncle Henry witnessed firsthand how it changed society on a practically infinite scale. Uncle Henry thought one of the most interesting developments was the railroad, which, by 1854 in Great Britain, was laid for thousands of miles, stitching the country together. Soon after the railroads and the many new locomotives, Uncle Henry witnessed the rise of enormous steel, steam-powered ships, capable of crossing seas and oceans and carrying people en masse. Uncle Henry voyaged, connecting him and others like him to the rest of the world. Henry, in all of his travels and experiences, had never forgotten Annabelle. Unbeknown to William, it wasn't long after Henry had arrived back in London, he'd taken a horse-drawn coach past the old manor. He wanted, in his heart, just to walk up the path and knock on the front door. But he daren't, for fear of being unwelcome. He sat in the stationary coach, deliberating, and decided instead to send a telegram. Onward, driver, onward, he yelled. An hour later, Henry had arrived home. Once settled, he wrote his telegram, but before signing it, he paused. For the same reason he'd not walked up to the house and just knocked on the door, he decided that he should send his telegram using an alternative name, a pseudonym. He explained his dilemma to Mary and asked her advice. Mary, what name do you think I should use? Well, your middle name is Albert, sir. What about that? she offered. Excellent, he exclaimed. What about a surname? he asked. Oh, I don't know, sir. Hmm, a surname, he deliberated, holding his hand to his forehead. I suppose I could use Catherine's family name. Oh, yes, sir, that's a very good idea, Mary agreed. Timlican. That sounds perfect. Mr. Albert Timlican, he announced as he signed the telegram. He gave Mary the telegram to take to the post office, with hope in his heart. He later considered that his deception would have to run deeper. When he met with William, he would need to ensure William didn't recognise him. The fact that William hadn't seen him for over 53 years was an adequate disguise for his looks, he thought, and he could also dress scruffily. But what of his voice, he thought. He practised speaking with an accent. Never having been very good with different accents, it came out as something indistinguishable. But he felt he could maintain it, and so it would be good enough. 
Another consideration was how much should he charge? Of course, he didn't want to charge at all. However, he thought it important to keep up appearances. Nobody would offer such a service free of charge, he thought. It had to be a realistic amount. £60 should be adequate, he decided. Henry also decided that it would be wise if Mary started to refer to him as Albert or Mr Timlikin to avoid any slip-ups down the line. Mary agreed. She would have gladly done anything to please Henry. He'd always been good to her. Chapter 7 The Addington's Search I'd never given up looking for Annabelle, and on the 2nd of February 1910, I received a post office telegram from one Mr Albert Timlikin, claiming he could find Annabelle. At first, I thought it nonsense, but the urge to investigate every avenue quickly overtook my original disregard, and therefore, I decided to reply. Over the coming months, Mr Timlikin and I corresponded fairly frequently. He never really gave me any details of how he would find Annabelle, but he asked lots of questions about her disappearance. The time, date, and most significantly about the parchment she wrote upon and always asking for me to meet with him. For more than 53 years, the search for Annabelle had continued. In the early years, before hope had peaked, Every day after school, I went about putting up fresh posters and replacing those that needed replacing. My mother and father took posters to church and campaigned for her safe return. Slowly but surely, hope decayed, and so did our efforts, but never entirely. Now and then, a new lease of life, a more pronounced effort, would urge us all on after a sighting of a girl who could have been Annabelle or some other offering. Every time, though, the outcome was invalidated. It would be a girl belonging to some other family and they would get roped into our gloom-ridden world during investigations. Always ending with an apology from my parents and words of understanding and even over-optimism from the other family in an attempt to comfort us in our unfavourable position of denial. Things went on this way for decades. When my parents got older, they became unable to continue and passed the baton on to me. I continued the search almost in vain. Every avenue I took to its end. Instead of my parents apologising now, it was me instead. I often wondered, had my parents and I given up our lives for nothing? A relentless search with no end. I had never married or had a family of my own. Aside from work, I found myself completely immersed in my efforts to find Annabelle. I decided I would meet with Mr Timlikin, sent him a telegram and made necessary travel arrangements. Chapter 8 First Glimpse Albert sat opposite me with his fingers intertwined and appeared deep in thought. Before you leave, William, I must warn you of something which is of significant importance. You may return through your door, but never Annabelle he alluded. I looked upon Albert with undoubted confusion. Why ever not? I asked. How old are you, William? he asked. I'm 64. Why do you ask? If Annabelle were here today, she would be 62, would she not? 
Yes, that's correct, I responded, wondering if this had all been in vain. If Annabelle returns through your doorway, she will return to 1910, where you are 64 and she is 62, and your parents are both deceased. Only instead of living a life and journeying through the natural course of time, all of that would be thrust upon her in an instant. Not to mention the hundreds, nay thousands, even millions of other changes in our modern world compared to that of 1853 when she departed, he explained. Then how do I get Annabelle home? I asked, feeling shocked that he'd not told me this in our earlier studies. You must take with you both your and Annabelle's parchment, together with a quill and ink. Once you find Annabelle, she must scribe upon her parchment, describing a doorway home. Okay, that sounds achievable, I answered. Also, make sure the doorway enters the real world somewhere inconspicuous, where others will not be able to witness, Albert alerted. Okay, I understand. There's another very important consideration, he alluded. Yes, I answered, starting to feel a little overwhelmed with all of the new complications. Heed my warning. Treat both parchments with extreme care. They can be damaged or even destroyed in the netherworld, which would undo all of your scripture and leave you trapped, he counselled. Oh, good lord. Okay, I'll make sure I keep them safe. Very good, he acknowledged. On Christmas Day in 1853, the day Annabelle went missing, it was a Sunday, so a good place for her exit doorway would be the stables, because Benjamin, our stable hand at the time, had gone to Sunday Mass. I recall my father had given him the day off, I suggested to Albert. Yes, that sounds perfect, William. To clarify... Nobody except those who hear the words read from the parchment would be able to see your doorway. However, when you venture through it, an onlooker would see that you appeared out of thin air, Albert imparted. Oh, I see. So is that why we can't see Annabelle's doorway in her room? I questioned. Exactly that, Albert exclaimed. I slung a leather satchel Albert had given to me over my shoulder, containing both parchments, a quill and a corked ink pot. Best of luck, William, Albert voiced. Thank you, Albert. I think I'll be needing it, I replied, taking a deep breath, readying myself. I twisted the heavy brass doorknob, opened and stepped through the large oak door, then closed and locked it behind me. As before, I gazed upon the magical land, taking in the enormity of the spectacle before me. A view I could never tire of, I thought to myself. My creation, the bridge between worlds, pathed the way to the outer limits of my world where I must read from Annabelle's parchment. The bridge dipped, rose and dived, twisting its way from one world to the edge of the other. In the distance beyond the bridge, my outlook took on what appeared like an oily black canvas, a vast, infinite abyss of nothing. It seemed so very far away to this ageing old man, and also more than a little scary. However, I'd come this far and knew I must continue. I took one more deep breath and proceeded on my way. I'd been walking for what seemed to have been many hours, although I had no way of telling here. At the precise moment I stepped through the door, just as Albert had explained to me, time had stopped. I checked my pocket watch for the umpteenth time, 
which had become a habitual annoyance. 3.46pm I felt that I lacked my usual wit, thinking to myself of my stupidity when I'd repeatedly checked my pocket watch, expecting it would show a different time. I pondered, if I forgot and checked one more time, it would surely drive me insane. I journeyed on, trying to govern the remaining distance. I recalled that I had described the bridge as being just one mile long from its beginning to its end. I'd estimated that the journey should take me no longer than 20 minutes of real-world time. Here existed a different set of rules. Occasionally, I'd turn and look behind me. Approximately, I thought I stood equidistant from the doorway and the bridge's end. I began to feel trapped on a never-ending path. In my panic, my mind raced and I started to remember part of my learnings with Albert. That was, I must remember to obey the laws of the netherworld. Time didn't exist here, therefore I needed an alternative measurement. I came up with a possible solution, I thought, feeling a hint of hope. Mentally, I'd done some rough arithmetic. In one mile, there are 1,760 yards. I decided that two of my strides were equivalent to one yard. Therefore, the whole distance was 3,520 strides, and that being the case, the entire journey should take no more than this number of steps. I confirmed, looking back one more time to get a measure of my position between the doorway and my destination, that I stood about halfway. Certainly, I thought, no more than 2,000 strides remaining. I began to count. Counting my steps, it didn't seem long before I reached the end of the bridge. A matter of minutes. This was it. I was stood at the bridge's end. So far my trials had been fairly straightforward, but now I had to connect to Annabelle's world. Even though I had the benefit of Albert's teachings, I felt very aware and nervous about my next task. I pulled Annabelle's parchment from my satchel, untied the ribbon, and holding it as firmly as I could with both hands, which was slightly shaking, as Albert had coached, I started reading her words aloud. As I read, before my eyes appeared my first glimpse of a wondrous magical place, where the grass was candy floss pink, trees were every colour of the rainbow twisting high into the deep turquoise sky, and bore delicious looking fruits of all imaginable shapes and colours. Unicorns grazed the meadows, and wildflowers were in abundance. The sun shone bright orange in a perfect and cloudless sky. Rabbits and deer frolicked and bound between the trees and over glistening speckled streams of lemony waters. The longer I looked, the more I noticed in this land of Annabelle's creation. In the distance to my right proudly stood a vast range of rocky snow-topped mountains which appeared to take on a spectral array of purple colours. To my far left, I noted an expansive and glistening lemony lake where all of the sparkling lemony waters of streams and estuaries came to their culmination. The centrepiece, the piece de resistance, a replica of our Georgian manor stood proud atop a distant hill overlooking this magical land created by the mind of nine-year-old Annabelle. That's where she would be, I thought. I turned and looked back towards the oak doorway far behind me, which appeared now no more than one inch tall, recalling Mr Timlikan's words. Remember the route back to your doorway home. Chapter 9 The Journey 
I stepped off the bridge and walked just a few steps into Annabelle's world. I stood at the edge of a pink pearlescent meadow which shimmered under the glow of the bright orange sun. I turned and looked back. My bridge had vanished. Instead, the meadow stretched out into the distance under the deep turquoise sky. I walked back a few steps, holding my arm outstretched. My hand disappeared through an invisible wall which rippled as my hand pierced its boundary. An infinitely tall and infinitely wide perfect mirror. I moved another step forwards, allowing my head to pass through. I could see my bridge standing in all its splendour. Feeling I now better understood Albert's instructions about remembering how to return to my doorway, I turned and walked back into Annabelle's world. I took note of a few trees to mark my passage home. I decided to rest before traversing these magnificent lands and found a comfortable spot beneath a tree. I dropped my satchel to the floor and stretched. My old bones cricked here and there. I then sat for a short while. Felt good to rest. In the tree above me hung what appeared to be giant strawberries. I stood and selected one and took a bite. I watched in amazement as another instantly appeared in its place. It was the sweetest, most delicious strawberry I'd ever tasted. I sat for a while longer and devoured the rest of the strawberry, savouring every morsel. My journey through Annabelle's world began. In the real world, more than eight hours had passed. Albert and Mary had retired for the night. Albert found it extremely difficult to sleep. His mind swirled and regurgitated every conversation and lesson he'd had with William. He tossed and turned, aiming to get more comfortable, in the hope that he'd fall asleep. It was to no avail. Defeated, he got out of bed and lit a candle and headed down to the kitchen to make some herbal tea. In doing so, Mary was disturbed, lit a candle of her own and also made her way to the kitchen to see that Albert was okay. When she got there, Albert had already put some water on to boil. Is everything okay, Albert? she asked, taking over the making of the tea. Just a little trouble sleeping, that's all. You needn't have got up, Mary. Sorry if I disturbed you. Oh, don't worry about that, Albert. I'll make a fine brew of herbal tea. That'll help relax you, Mary suggested. Thank you, Mary, Albert replied as he took a seat at the kitchen table. Onwards I paced, making slow progress. I had started counting my steps using objects in the near distance as markers. It wasn't long before I came upon a stone bridge which was a crossing over a wider part of the river. I stood on the brow of the bridge, peering into the lemony waters below. A subtle, zesty scent filled the proximate air. The tranquil waters looked as inviting as a lido and were clear as crystal. I couldn't help but stop and examine every spectacle, each one a monument of brilliance and wonder in its own right. Everywhere I looked consumed me with awe. I knew I had to make progress and concentrate on the reason I was there, and I continued on my way. I crossed into a meadow where unicorns grazed and ran freely, and butterflies of the most spectacular colours gracefully propelled through the air in random motions. One such butterfly landed and perched on my right index finger for a few moments. I stood completely still, examining its intricate beauty before it fluttered off again, 
joining with the kaleidoscope of butterflies around me. In the near distance, I eyed a winding pathway which cascaded around the mountainside far below the old manor. That was my next target. I continued counting my steps as I went. It didn't feel very long before I was at the foot of the mountain path. I had a different perspective here. It took on a whole new gravitas. The enormity of the mountain overwhelmed the lands below. I imagine that's how an ant would feel stood next to an elephant. On and on I trundled, counting my steps as I went. I ached in parts of my body where I'd never ached before. For a man of 64, this was truly an arduous journey. I kept in my mind's eye my reason and I knew in my heart that it would be worthwhile. Even if I only caught sight of Annabel just once more for a fleeting moment, this journey would have been worth every pain, every ache and every effort. As I had now become accustomed, I often checked behind me in an effort to visually measure the distance travelled and the distance remaining. I appeared to be about one third of the way up the mountainside and had counted some 2,273 steps. I assumed an approximation of another 5,000 to go. I pressed on. Chapter 10 The Meeting I thought to myself, it hadn't occurred to me that when I met Annabelle, she wouldn't recognise me. According to Albert, Annabelle was still aged nine years old. To Annabelle, she'd been away a matter of minutes, while in the real world, it had been 53 gruelling years. Those years had aged me more than most, with the extra worries and stresses I carried with me most of my life. I had to convince Annabelle somehow of who I was and gain her trust before I could begin to figure out how to get us both home safely. Sometime later, I stood barely 200 yards away from the old manor. As a younger man, I might have run all the way to the door. I felt an excitement I hadn't felt since I was a young boy, but also a fear of rejection, scepticism or even incredulity. I found my story hard to believe, but somehow I had to convince nine-year-old Annabelle of its truth. I approached the door, taking each step with meaningful determination until I reached the doorway. I stood with my arm outstretched, ready to knock the door. My heart raced. I knocked on the door three times and stood waiting. Inside the house, Annabel heard the knocks. She was sitting on her bed, playing with some dolls. Hmm, nobody has knocked the door before, she thought. Must be the wind, she decided and continued playing. Just in case, I'll take a look through the window, she thought. She got up off her bed and did just that. Outside the house, I saw the curtain at the landing window move and decided to wave to show Annabelle I was friendly. She retreated and the curtain dropped back into place. It's an old man, she thought. That's no fun, and went about playing again. No, that's rude. I should find out what he wants, she decided and then ventured down the stairs towards the door. Stood outside the house, I could hear the slapping of bare feet approaching the door. The door opened. Annabelle stood before me. I wanted to scream out, but I knew I couldn't. Holding it in was gut-wrenching. I fought to hold back my tears. Hello, I said, with a quiver in my voice. Hello, how can I help you? Annabelle asked brightly. Well, it's a very long story. 
May I come in? I asked. No, I don't know who you are. Well, I know all about you, Annabelle, I declared, with tears in my eyes, shaking and feeling somewhat overwhelmed. How do you know my name? she asked. I'm a friend of the family, I replied, trying to think on my feet and not blurt out anything too difficult to comprehend. Then how come I've never seen you before? Well, I think you have, but when I was younger. Oh, okay. If you know my family, what's my father's name? It's Leonard. Leonard Addington, I replied with conviction. Okay, I guess you can come in then. Thank you, Annabelle. Inside the house was incredible. Everything looked brand new. In reality, the old manor these days is looking a bit rough around the edges in comparison, I thought. Annabelle led me to the drawing room, which was as it had always been. It was my favourite room in the old manor with its very elegant design. It housed an intricately carved open fireplace which was centred on the chimney stack, which protruded into the room creating wide and deep alcoves either side. The plasterwork in the room was nothing short of artistry, and the ceiling was as ornate as the furnishings. Laid out and furnished quite formally, in keeping with the Georgian characteristics of the house, niches, ornate carvings, piercings and gilding added to the inherent beauty of the room. We sat comfortably on the Chesterfield sofa, and Annabelle offered me a refreshment. What do you have? I asked. I have fruit juice, Annabelle offered. That sounds perfect. Okay. Dorothy is going to join us too, Annabelle said, before running from the room and fetching her doll, which she then proceeded to sit on a three-legged stool before offering her a drink too. Dorothy will have the same, she revealed, and then ran off to the kitchen. After a couple of minutes, Annabelle returned with a jug of fruit juice and three glasses on a tray, which she set down on a side table. She then filled the glasses and passed me a glass and pretended to give Dorothy a sip before drinking some of her own. I sat there smiling contentedly the whole time whilst just watching my little sister go about her play, enjoying every moment. Okay, you said you have a long story to tell, Annabelle reminded. Yes, quite long. What's your name? she asked. My name is William, I introduced. Annabelle laughed. That's my brother's name. Yes, I know. How come you know so much about me and my family? she asked. Well, do you believe in magic, Annabelle? Yes, just this morning, Uncle Henry told my brother William and I about it, Annabelle disclosed. Ah, oh, yes, of course, I smiled, remembering Uncle Henry's story. Well, what if I told you I believe in magic too, I continued. Don't be silly. Magic is for children. Uncle Henry told us so. Ah, but he didn't actually say that. Uncle Henry said... I fear the imagination required is more of a gift for the young, not that he didn't believe. Isn't that right? Annabelle looked bemused. How do you know that? she asked, showing the whites of her eyes. Okay, before I answer, can I ask, will you please let me explain everything in full? Yes, of course. I thought that's what we were doing. I know, but what I mean is... It's a little difficult to believe, and I do need to explain everything fully. Okay, Annabelle exclaimed. Well, remember you said William is your brother's name? Yes. I'm your brother, Annabelle, I said, 
as tears started to flood down my face. Annabelle looked taken aback, and her smile dropped from her face. I worried that this was all too much to take in. How can you be my brother? My brother's eleven years old, Annabelle said softly. Okay, I will explain everything, Annabelle. I struggle to believe it myself, and when I hear myself saying these things, I can fully understand how you will receive it and how difficult it is to comprehend. Okay, well I like stories. She laughed in an attempt to lighten my mood, it appeared. I dried my eyes and apologised for getting tearful, then took a breath and tried to better compose myself before continuing. That's alright, please don't get upset. I'd firstly like to prove to you that I am indeed who I say I am. Ask me anything. Anything at all. Okay, let me think, she replied as brightly as ever. What is our housekeeper's name? Ah, uh, that's easy. Florence. Ask me something harder. Mm, okay. Tell me what I had for Christmas. You had the same as me. Three pieces of parchment and a new quill. Uncle Henry told us when scribed upon and the words read aloud... That they were magical, I answered. No, it's impossible, Annabel answered with disbelief in her expression. Can I touch your face? she asked. Yes, you may, I answered with a frog in my throat, still feeling very emotional. Annabel stood and approached me, reached out and felt my skin with her young hands, looking me in the eyes. But you're so old, she stated with a look of concern. I cupped Annabelle's right hand gently against my right cheek. I know, Annabelle. I'm 64, I replied, looking her in the eyes. I'm not sure, she admitted, with apprehension in her voice, pulling back her hands. Look at my eyes, Annabelle. Don't you recognise them? You do have William's eyes, she said softly. Ask me something else? I said, wanting desperately for her to believe me. Okay, who had the sixpence in their Christmas pudding? It was me, Annabelle. I did. William, it is you, she said and hugged me. How are you so old? Well, I did say it was a long story. Perhaps we can continue it later, I postulated. Okay, that's fine, she agreed with a smile on her face. I felt that I shared enough with Annabelle for now and that I needed to rest a while before exploring how we could get her home. It was clear that she liked it here and that she had hardly a care in this world to worry about. I felt somewhat guilty that I had to take her away from here back into the much harsher real world. It was an absolute pleasure to watch her at play. Can I rest a while, please, Annabelle? I've had quite a long and stressful journey getting here, I explained. Yes, of course, William. You can rest in your room. I retired to a replica of my room, which looked almost identical to my childhood bedroom. Only, as did the rest of the house, it appeared brand new. I took comfort from that and lay a while on the bed. Although time didn't exist here, that didn't stop me from aching as I had for many years. Too many years to remember how long it had been. In the real world, two days had passed. Albert and Mary were discussing William's and Annabelle's fate. Although worried for them, Albert took some comfort from the fact that William hadn't returned, knowing that he couldn't bring Annabelle back this way. Sometime later, when I felt better rested and a little refreshed, I thought it pertinent to carry on my discussion with Annabelle. 
I ventured down the stairs with the satchel hung over my right shoulder to find her. Annabelle, I shouted from the hallway. The front door was left wide open and Annabelle didn't respond. I'd guess she'd be in the garden, so I went outside to check. Annabelle, I shouted once more, now stood in the front garden. I'm over here, Annabelle shouted back from around the side of the house. I made my way around the side of the house and found Annabelle was petting a bunny, which she'd named Arthur Addington. She introduced me to Arthur. Lovely, isn't he? He's very nice, Annabelle, I agreed as I stroked his velvet-like pure white fur. Are you ready to continue the story? I asked, still stroking Arthur as I did. Yes, okay, would you like to sit inside? Yes, I think that will be better. Annabelle released Arthur onto the floor and we walked inside together and sat in the study. Would you like to go home now, Annabelle? I asked, feeling hopeful. Oh, can't we stay and play just a little longer? I do think it's time to go and see mother and father. I pulled my parchment out of the satchel. The text glinted in the light as I revealed it. I started to explain. This is my parchment, Annabelle. I have yours with me too. In order to get home, I want to play for longer, Annabelle moaned, interrupting me and grabbed the parchment from my hands, tearing it into pieces in the process. Where the text once had a shimmer, the two halves were now scribed with what looked like plain old black ink. Oh no, Annabelle. Oh no, I screeched with widened eyes. What's wrong? It's just parchment, William. We can just get some more, Annabelle proposed. No, Annabelle. It's magical. Now I may be stuck here, I cried, closing my eyes momentarily as I did. Albert sat in his study, catching up on some research he'd been working on, when suddenly, in a flash of light, the doorway vanished. Chapter 11 Trapped I gave Annabelle a fair explanation of how I got into her world. I explained the doorway, the bridge, and the infinite mirror. I need to go and check if it's still there, if my way home still exists, I asserted. I'm so sorry, William, I didn't know, Annabelle said solemnly and with regret, looking down at her feet. I'll come with you, she continued, sounding a little brighter. Okay, we should go. I put the two pieces of parchment into my satchel, and we made our way outside and closed the front door. I looked on at the long journey ahead, a journey I'd hoped I wouldn't have to endure again so soon. We set off. Back in the real world, Albert grew more and more worried that something terrible had gone wrong. He worried that he'd missed something in his teachings or that William may have forgotten. He prayed that William and Annabel would make it home safely. I let out a sigh. Annabel asked, what's wrong? I explained my feet hurt and I felt the journey was long. Annabel touched my feet and all my aches dissipated. I felt amazed, astonished even, once again. This world was such an incredible place, a land beyond reality where dreams erupted into existence. It does seem far away, Annabelle agreed. She clapped her hands together above her head. A horse-drawn coach appeared before us. I mesmerised two stunning white stallions, coupled with harnesses to a luxury open-top 
highly polished chestnut wooden coach with plush, deep red velvet seating. We stepped into the carriage, got seated comfortably and began our journey over to the site of the infinite mirror, down and around the mountain path, through the valley, over the bridge, past the forest and across meadows until we reached our destination. The journey felt like it took very little time, almost no time at all when compared with my journey on foot. I sat speechless for the whole journey, just taking in the wonders around us. When we approached the two trees that I had used as my markers to my land and to the bridge between our worlds, I alerted Annabelle. That's it, between those trees, right there. Annabelle stopped the carriage by simply raising her hand. Remarkable, I exclaimed. I stepped down and walked through the centre of the two trees with my arm outstretched, as I had before. There was nothing. My way home had gone. Vanished. Expelled from existence. I'm trapped here, Annabelle. It's gone. I'm sorry, William. I didn't mean to. I know. That's fine. I've had a long life, Annabelle, and I've achieved my dream of finding you. That alone means everything to me. We can still get you home. I interrupted. No, I won't leave without you, William, Annabel declared. May I see the pieces of parchment? Annabelle asked. Of course, I replied, thinking the fate of the parchment no longer mattered. It was all too late. Annabel held the two pieces of parchment, one in each hand, and held them together at the tear and matched the join. There was a great ripple of light across our view. Annabel declared, I think it's still there. In her excitement, the text on the scroll shimmered in front of Annabelle's eyes. I recalled what Albert had told me. The essence will remain. Annabelle willed the two pieces to become whole again in her mind. A bright light sparkled, tracing around the tear between the two pieces and stitched them back together again as one. William, William, I did it. It's fixed, Annabelle cried. I stepped forward with my arm held aloft. As I'd experienced before, my hand disappeared through the infinite perfect mirror. I withdrew my hand and asked Annabelle to join me. I want you to see this, Annabelle. Annabelle joined me and we both stepped through the great threshold. Any scepticism Annabelle had held on to regarding my story instantly dispersed as Annabelle witnessed my bridge to her world with the same awe in which I had witnessed her world. Annabelle's excitement overtook her. Can we go home now, William? Annabelle asked, looking at my doorway in the far distance. Not this way, I began to explain. Only I can pass through my doorway, I said, not wanting to scare Annabelle. I gave no further detail. Annabelle's inquisitive mind wouldn't let go that easily. Why not? she asked. It's complicated. You sound like father. Complicated how? We can only return through a door of our own making. Yes, but why? Annabelle persisted. Let's go back to the old manor and I'll explain on the way. In the real world, Albert witnessed as the doorway re-manifested in his library in a similar fashion to how it had disappeared. A bright flash of light filled his view momentarily before the doorway reappeared in all its magical and magnificent glory. Chapter 12 The Way Home we journeyed back towards the old manor. En route, I explained in more detail to Annabelle what she must do to get back to the real world. 
You must scribe upon your scroll, describing a doorway back to the real world, I began. Why can't I just think of a doorway the same way I conjured this carriage? Annabelle asked. That's a fair question, I remarked. The way I understand it, Annabelle, is that you only possess the power for things within this world and cannot connect to the real world with it. The only way to do that is to scribe upon your scroll as it originated in the real world and therefore it holds a connection, I continued. That makes sense, I suppose, Annabelle said in a matter-of-fact sort of way, shrugging her shoulders. I will need to coach you before you begin. Coach me? I know how to write, silly. Annabelle laughed as we trundled along up and over the bridge. Yes, I know that, Annabelle, but there are some rules you need to follow to make it work well and for it to be safe. Albert kept a close eye on the doorway, monitoring it for any changes. He felt huge relief following its reappearance, but still worried for William and Annabelle. Four days had passed. With Albert's lack of sleep, it seemed to be far longer and it had been hard to endure, especially for a gentleman of his later years. Annabelle and I neared the entrance to the mountain path. On we trundled, up and around the mountainside. It was so much easier than walking, I thought to myself as we progressed with apparent ease. Before arrival at the old manor, Annabelle and I had decided we'd set up the parchment for her scripture in the last stall of the stable block, where we wished the doorway to exit into the real world. When we arrived, we brought Annabelle's desk and stool from her bedroom, the replica desk to hers in the real world upon which she had written her original draft. We stuck down the parchment at the corners, and I proceeded to explain to Annabelle in detail what she needed to include in her scripture to construct her doorway correctly and safely. I recalled all of my learnings on the subject with Albert. We went over the details a few times to ensure Annabelle understood and would follow the steps correctly. Annabelle was ready. I sat beside her on a hay bale as she began her scripture. Annabelle held the quill I'd provided in her right hand and dipped it into the ink pot. She turned to me and gazed upon me with a shallow smile before poising herself in readiness. She began to write. Her scripture flowed as she followed the same steps I had to create my doorway. Once she'd finished her description, she dropped the quill into the ink pot and cleared her throat, ready to begin reading her scripture. I think I'm ready now, William, she addressed. Okay, Annabelle, in your own time, I replied as calmly as I could, feeling a deep sense of the momentousness of the task she was about to undertake. Tears came to my eyes with the realisation that this was the breakthrough I'd been searching for and waiting for since her disappearance all those long years ago. As she read, the words on the parchment shimmered and her doorway magically manifested itself within the stable wall. The key hung round her neck on a lanyard of twine. Let's take a break now, Annabelle, I suggested. Okay, Annabelle answered. It hadn't occurred to either of us that Annabelle would have to leave so much behind. All of her creations. Worst of all were the animal friends whom she had named. She knew she had to leave and sat in the front garden petting Arthur one more time. You'll be all right, Arthur, Annabelle told him, stroking his ears with a very solemn look on her face. I felt deep guilt to the point that I questioned whether I should be asking her to leave at all. I knew she was safe and well, she hadn't aged at all, and had all she desired. That was to be replaced by a harsh world where she'd have schooling, strict parents, 
and a whole plethora of life's general upsets to deal with. It played out on my mind, so much that I felt I needed to ask Annabelle what she wished to do. Annabelle, may I speak with you? Of course. You don't have to ask to speak to me, William. That's silly. Yes, perhaps. I need to ask you. Do you want to come home? Well, of course, William. What a daft question, she answered, a little confused. OK, I just want it to be your choice. That's all. Well, now you know. OK. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready, Annabelle said brightly. We hugged, then stood in front of her doorway. Annabelle unlocked the door and grasped the doorknob, turning it anti-clockwise, opening her door. As I was already familiar, a bright light lit up Annabelle's frontage as she stepped over the threshold. In an instant, many of the wonders in Annabelle's world blinked out of existence, as though she turned off a light. I suppose that all that remained was in scripture upon her parchment, while all that had vanished must have been Annabelle's creations born from her will or want alone. By comparison, her world now looked very modest, almost timid. All of the creatures that had once graced this land had gone. An empty field lay where once stood the old manor. Only a single waterway remained which crossed the plains. It remained a land of true beauty, but felt desolate, void of Annabelle's personality. Annabelle closed the door behind her, and as I'd instructed, locked it, securing the two worlds apart. Now, all that remained was for me to return to my doorway, and all would be remedied, as had always been the plan. Albert got out of bed and dressed for breakfast. He joined Mary in the dining room. He'd slept better last night, probably due to sheer exhaustion, he thought, as he ate his breakfast. After breakfast, Albert headed straight for his library. He carried with him the morning newspaper and opened the door, not paying full attention as he entered because an article had caught his eye. Spinster Annabel Addington signs merger deal with American law firm giant Bowen Law. The two companies will become Addington Bowen in the historic deal. Albert looked up from the paper with a shallow smile on his face to find that William's doorway had gone. I arrived back at my markers to my way home. The two trees. As before, I walked between them with my right arm held aloft, only to find the infinite mirror had once again vanished. I looked around me to check that these were the correct trees. Although the land now looked different in many ways, I was certain I stood in the correct location. I pondered. The changes to the land were all following Annabelle's departure. Perhaps that had some relevance here. I opened the satchel to find my parchment in two halves. Annabelle's magical fix had undone with the rest of her willed creations when she'd left this world. It hadn't been written, only conjured through the strength of her will. The same as all other things that had been withdrawn from this land. I turned on my heels and headed back towards Annabelle's doorway. My only hope now was to exit via her door. I wondered if it was even possible, but I had to at least try. The next morning, Annabelle awoke, feeling she'd had the most amazing dream. Got out of bed and went to find William to tell him all about it. It was Boxing Day and William was still feeling rather tired and had planned to sleep in and grumpily dismissed her excited attempts to share her story. Go away, Annabelle, I'm tired. Tell me later, he bellowed. A feeling inside her made her think there was more to it. With that in her mind, she recalled the key 
and felt her neckline where she found the key dangling on a twine lanyard, just as she'd assumed she'd dreamt. A shiver went down her spine, and she had goosebumps on her arms with the realisation it wasn't a dream. She recalled the doorway, and heart-pounding, she ran to the stables and crept into the last stall, where she stood silent, taken aback with wide eyes and an open mouth when she discovered her doorway remained, inset into the stable wall. After walking for what felt like many hours, I finally arrived at Annabelle's doorway. With hope in my heart, I tried turning the doorknob, but it was locked. Annabelle had done exactly as I'd instructed. I hammered my fist on the door in frustration, then slouched with my back against the door feeling my last remaining hope was lost. I felt under immense stress. My heart raced, my head pounded, and I even prayed for a way out of this incredible mess. On the other side of the door, Annabelle heard a faint knocking. She contemplated briefly that old William had told her to lock the door and keep it secured no matter what. But what if it was William knocking, she thought. Just then, Benjamin, the stable hand, put his head round the side of the stall. Everything okay, Miss Annabelle? he asked. Yes, I'm fine, thank you, Benjamin. Just playing, Annabelle answered. Okay, miss, but don't go getting your clothes mucky. Your father will have my guts for garters, he exclaimed, before continuing with his chores. Annabelle decided she needed to know and waited for Benjamin to be out of sight and then took the key from around her neck and unlocked the door. Annabelle poked her head through the bright light and saw William sitting slumped just beyond the door, staring down at the floor. William, what's wrong? she asked as she stepped through. Oh, Annabelle, thank goodness, I announced got up onto my feet, smiling, and gave her a long hug. My doorway has vanished, I continued. What will you do? Annabelle asked. I looked up and witnessed that all of Annabelle's creations had re-manifested themselves. The land was once again filled with life. Annabelle's presence had made it so. I explained to Annabelle what had happened. Check your parchment again, William, Annabelle suggested. I opened my satchel. Oh my, it's whole again, I confirmed. It's connected to you, Annabelle. It only appears whole when you are present in this world, I explained. So you can only return if I stay, Annabelle asked. Not sure, Annabelle, I admitted. Then you should return with me through my doorway, Annabelle suggested with excitement. I deliberated, stood looking at Annabelle's open doorway, and decided it would be worth the risk. Annabelle and I stepped through the door, leaving her world of wonders behind us. As I stepped through, there was a great flash of light. Annabelle immediately locked the door behind us, securely ostracising us from the netherworld. Chapter 13 Stupefaction I awoke in my bed, not remembering how I'd got there. I sat up and stretched and took a wide yawn before fully opening my eyes. It was different. Anything different is good, I thought. I was in my bedroom from my childhood years. Or at least it appeared that way. I rubbed my eyes with closed fists, not believing what I saw before me. I reopened my eyes and noticed my hands and arms. They weren't the hands and arms of a 64-year-old gentleman, but in fact were my eleven-year-old hands and arms. I swung my legs around and stared at my legs and feet, dangling more than a foot above the floor. I felt my face. 
not one wrinkle or bristle. I leapt out of bed and ran to the mirror and saw the reflection of my younger self. My initial reaction was one of stupefaction. Overwhelmed, I twisted around and looked at my behind in the pursuit of taking in the actuality. The realisation hit me. I was home. I twirled and danced around the room, feeling the greatest joy. The joy of all joys. The smile soon dropped. Oh my goodness. Annabelle! I shouted aloud and ran to her room, only to find the door locked. I tried shaking the door, repeatedly turning the doorknob in an attempt to open the door, but it was locked and secure. Suddenly, a familiar voice from behind me snapped. What are you doing, young man? Father, ah! I ran and gave him a tight hug. Well, he questioned, looking down at me. I was uh, just looking for Annabelle, sir, I replied. Annabelle is with your mother downstairs, my boy. Are you sure, father? I questioned, beaming with excitement. Yes, of course. Why ever not? Oh, it's nothing, I shouted back with tears building up in my eyes as I ran down the stairs. Be careful, child, father shouted after me. I will, I exclaimed as I reached the nearly bottom of the stairs. Annabelle, Annabelle, I shouted, running from room to room around the ground floor. What's all this noise? Florence asked, poking her head around the threshold of the kitchen door. Oh, nothing, Florence, sorry. I offered a little more calmly as I ran past, which turned into a fast-paced walk when she tutted at me, shaking her head with her hands on her hips. Annabelle stood before me at the end of the hallway. I stopped in my tracks. Do you remember? I asked. Oh, Lord, it was real. I thought I'd dreamt it. Annabelle screeched as she ran towards me. We hugged and danced around the hallway. You're home, Annabelle, you're home, I shouted in celebration. Mother walked in. Keep the noise down, children. Sorry, Mother, we both replied and ran up the stairs to my room. Annabelle and I excitedly discussed all that had happened. No wonder Mr. Timlikin insisted on payment up front, I jested, followed by a giggle. There's no way I'd be able to pay him now. We both laughed. We talked for over an hour about all the events that we had both been party to. Once Annabelle and I had settled, I lay on my bedroom floor looking up at the ceiling, just letting everything percolate. Oh my, Annabelle, I declared and sat up. I've just had the most dreadful of thoughts. I shared as the colour drained from my cheeks. What, William? What? Annabelle cried. The doorway, Annabelle. We need to destroy it, I alerted. But why? For 53 years I searched for you, Annabelle. Mother and father gave up their lives. It's important that history can't and doesn't repeat itself. Okay, how? Annabelle questioned. We need to destroy the parchments, I presume. Only, if we do, in 53 years the parchment won't be there. Does that mean I won't be able to find you? I postulated. What will we do? Annabelle asked. We have to find Mr. Timlikin, I exclaimed. Until that moment, it hadn't entered our minds that we didn't have the keys, the satchel, or the parchments in our possession. We both searched throughout the house, and we searched the stables for the doorway. There was nothing to be found. There was not even a trace. Chapter 14 All in the Imagination 
all of that was 53 years ago. Oddly, Annabelle and I never found the satchel, the keys, the quill, the ink pot or the parchments, and although we monitored the stable, the doorway never appeared. Did we both share the same dream, we wondered many times. Was it all in our imaginations? We carried those questions, among others like them, with us, all of our lives. We could never talk about it, of course, except with one another. There was still the last remaining connection, Mr Timlican. All of these years we'd searched to no avail, until now. Someone new had moved into Mr Timlican's address. This was the year Mr Timlican had contacted me. It was 1910. Annabelle and I stood outside Mr Timlican's residence. He'd have the answers we sought. We were sure of it. I knocked on the door with Annabelle beside me. Mary, Mr Timlican's housekeeper, answered the door. Hello, Mary, I said. Hello, sir. Have we met? Yes, many times, I answered, feeling already confused. Oh, forgive me, sir. I don't recall. That's fine. Don't worry. Is Albert home? Albert, sir, Mary asked with a confused look on her face. Yes, Albert, I confirmed. Shaking her head, there's nobody of that name living here, sir, Mary alluded. Mr. Albert Timlican, I questioned. No, sir. This is the residence of Mr. Henry Addington. Annabelle and I looked at each other. Uncle Henry, Annabelle said. May we speak with the master of the house, I asked. Yes, sir. Please won't you both come in, Mary politely offered. We both sat in the same room where I had waited before. I remembered it in every detail. Except above the double doors was a wooden plaque which was inscribed, Mr. Henry Addington, Philosopher. It felt very strange and made me feel nauseous. Annabelle and I chatted while we waited. The left-hand door opened and Albert stood before us. Only he looked different. Smartly dressed. Pristine, in fact. Wearing gentleman's clothing. Albert? I asked. William? Annabelle? He replied, squinting as if to get a better look. Who's Albert? He asked. I'm your Uncle Henry. I've just returned to Great Britain. I have some marvellous stories to tell. Come through and have some tea, he offered. Annabelle and I graciously accepted and followed Uncle Henry through the darkened corridor and into his library, which also perfectly resembled the picture in my mind's eye. Apologies for the untidiness. I've only been back in Britain for two days and I'm still unpacking. Incidentally, how did you know I lived here? I haven't had the chance to contact anyone yet to inform them of my presence. That's a very long story, I answered, being careful not to come across as nonsensical. Oh, you must tell. Anyway, it's great to see you both. Take a seat, won't you? Uncle Henry offered. As we took tea and chatted about Uncle Henry's adventures, I noticed the satchel upon a high shelf. May I see that satchel, Uncle Henry? Of course, William. I'll get it down for you. Uncle Henry answered sincerely and stood upon a stool to reach it and handed it down to me. On closer examination, it was indeed the satchel. I bought that in Central Asia, he alluded. I've had it for more than thirty years, he continued. What provokes your interest in it, may I ask? Annabelle and I looked at one another. I wasn't sure how to approach that question, and I decided on a safe answer. It bears a similarity to a satchel I once borrowed, I answered, as vaguely as I could. 
Oh, I see, Uncle Henry answered with a bemused look on his face. May I open it? I asked, with my heart beginning to race. Go ahead, he answered instantly with a shrug of his shoulders. Of course, I doubted I'd find anything, but the whole situation felt very deja vu. I opened the satchel to reveal the two parchments, one whole and the other torn in two. I retrieved them from the satchel, examining them more closely. Annabelle, these are our parchments, I announced. Let me take a look, Uncle Henry asked. Holding Annabelle's parchment in his hands and looking upon it more closely himself, he said, Ah, oh, yes, don't you remember? You both wrote me a story at Christmas one year, as children. It was the year before I'd begun my travels. I've always kept them. I've taken them around the world with me, he said with a smile. Uncle Henry passed Annabelle's parchment back to me. On closer inspection, it and my parchment appeared to be written in ordinary plain black ink. I felt confused, and I also felt I had to explain. Uncle Henry, I do remember writing on these parchments, but I also recognise your satchel, your house, and even Mary, your housekeeper. Something is very odd, I remarked. I recognise the satchel and parchments too, Annabelle added. Uncle Henry turned to both of us, rubbing his chin between his right index finger and thumb, with a frown and eyes squinted, appearing to be deep in thought. I wasn't going to say anything, but I had a rather intense dream, Uncle Henry imparted. A dream? I questioned. Yes, just a dream. I'm sure of it, he continued. I don't think it was a dream, Uncle Henry. No, neither do I, Annabelle agreed. Can you explain it any differently? Uncle Henry asked. Annabelle and I described to Uncle Henry in great detail all that we'd endured and how we'd ended up here at his home. Ah, it appears we have shared the same dream, he said exorbitantly. Remarkable. Annabelle and I looked at each other, both feeling that Uncle Henry was being dismissive. Uncle Henry, do you believe in magic? I asked. Of course, but I fear the imagination required is more of a gift for the young, he declared, and winked at us both. Smiling, from ear to ear. The end. Good night. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.